The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does will the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Charlie. Big couple of Sundays for Charlie. He won uh, one of the prizes last week for his sermon art uh, and Uh, I guess uh, the fun continues as he uh, reads scripture with such uh, courage and care. It takes a lot, doesn't it, of courage to get in front of all these people and read. Well done, buddy. Um, Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. And it's my privilege to uh, move us forward this morning in our series on the Ten Commandments. And we are now at commandment number three. This is found in Exodus chapter 20. And uh, the title of the sermon is to bear God's name rightly, or you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. So when you hear someone's name mentioned, immediately thoughts come to mind because a person's name is a representation of who they are. For instance, if you hear the name Gigi Sanders, you think merciful, servant, If you hear the name David Filson, you think brilliant and humble all at the same time. If you hear the word or the name Leah Moser, you think sensitive, deep faith. If you hear the name Todd Teller, Todd was the one who was up here doing all of the other stuff before I got here. So you can't make this stuff up, you guys. He he really is in person, the same person he is up here. When you hear the name Todd Teller, you think caring, and now that we're moving out of COVID, kissing people again. So you think these things when you hear Todd's name. So imagine you've known Todd for years, and you've known him as this caring, kissing, loving, tender-hearted person that he is, but one day you encounter him in the hallway, and he forgets to kiss you on the neck or on the head, as the case may be. And immediately your thoughts start getting assumicidal toward Todd. You start to assume, regardless of any history you've had before with him, that he just doesn't like you. In fact, he doesn't like people. In fact, he's mean. In fact, he's 
maybe a sociopath, all because of one experience for which you did not have the full context. In fact, it turns out that the reason Todd didn't kiss you is that he has a cold and he doesn't want to pass it on to you. He's caring for you. And so the true story beneath the story, the true story beneath the suicidal narrative is that he's the same as he's always been. And it's a horrible thing to reduce somebody's name to your very worst memory, your very worst singled out thought about that person. We are whole persons with whole stories and you just can't do that to Todd. You can do it to me, but don't do it to Todd because then you have an issue with me. We're talking today about taking the Lord's name and carrying it and bearing it in a right way. The name of God represents who he is in the same way that the name of Todd represents who he is. The name of God represents our creator, our redeemer, the lover of our souls, the lamb and the lion, who is as Our Westminster Shorter Catechisms say infinite, eternal, unchanging in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. And so when we carry his name, wherever we carry his name, those are the things that we have to reverentially have in mind and carefully have in mind as we represent him on social media, in the places where we live, work, and play, in the conversations we have in private. So there are two commands out of the ten that are fiercely dedicated to protecting a good name. One of them is the ninth commandment, which we'll unpack in greater detail in a a later week, where it says, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Why would you have to be concerned about bearing false testimony, spreading an untrue or incomplete negative story about another person because it's their name at stake. It's their good name at stake. False testimony is about saying untrue things or leaving true things, especially good true things, out of the picture. It's to smear someone, it's to reduce them to a caricature. Jesus Half-brother James wrote about how we can use the tongue to tear down people who are made in God's image, which is not only an assault on them, but also an assault on God. When we tear them down, James writes in chapter 3 of his letter, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. So that's one commandment that's fiercely protective of the name of your neighbor. This one, though, is one that is meant to be fiercely protective about the name of of God himself. The phrase, you shall not take God's name in vain, literally means you must not take God's name in unreality. Don't be nominal 
in your faith. Don't be a believer in name only, but then conduct yourself, represent in a way that undermines that he is infinite, eternal, unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's tricky here, though, because in the Bible, there are some people who themselves have a bad name, and yet God gives them a good name, and they bear God's name rightly according to God's perspective. Abraham, who was questionable, uh, to say the least, as a husband, put his own wife in very vulnerable situations. Or Rahab, who is identified as a prostitute. Or King David, who had that dreadful season of, of adultery, abuse of power, and murder. So, in the Bible, it's tricky because there's some people who give themselves a bad name who, through grace and forgiveness, God puts them forth as having a good name because they bear His name. Likewise, there's some people in the Bible, and this is where it gets even more confusing, who are revealed by God as those who are bearing His name in unreality, the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says to them, you say that you're sons of Abraham. You say that the name that you're attached to is Abraham. I tell you, you are sons of the devil himself. That's the name that you belong to. Or these people in Matthew 7 who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? And Jesus says, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I stopped knowing you. He doesn't say, I've put you in the rear view. He says, I never knew you. So two questions. What's going on here? And secondly, how can we know that he knows our name? So first, what's going on here? If, if you read other parts of Scripture, Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. So if you look at Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds, he's describing people who carry the name of God and who don't have the name of God and yet who present themselves in in ways that look very similar, a lot like Pharaoh's uh, sorcerers and magicians presented themselves as being able to perform the same miracles that Moses did. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus says, they grow together. They both appear genuine. But at the end of time at the judgment, God, who discerns the hearts of all, will separate the wheat from the tares. And so here in verse 22, where Jesus says, many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? I mean, you've got really good, solid religious optics here. They have doctrinal correctness going for them. They, they call him Lord, which is the Greek word or Greek name kurios. This is the, the, the New Testament Greek equivalent of the Old Testament name Yahweh. They have emotional enthusiasm in their worship. Lord, Lord, whenever you repeated a name more than once, it's like putting an exclamation point at the end in the same way that Jesus said, Martha, Martha, my dear Martha. Or, or, or David said, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Or how Jesus grieved over Jerusalem, 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 how I've longed to gather you under my wings of care as a mother hen gathers her chick. So, so, so they had doctrinal correctness, emotional enthusiasm, and also 
a record, a track record of ministry and service. Did we not prophesy, cast out demons, perform mighty works in your name? Now this is disorienting. This is admittedly disorienting because all of the, almost all the external indicators of faith are present. There's only one thing absent. They're appealing to their own record as opposed to the grace of God as the thing that stamps the name of God on them. And it's only the grace, only the mercy, only the adopting love of God, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves, that, that, that puts his name on us. And their appeal is, look at all these things we've done. Look at all these things. You know, Martin Luther, who famously was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation, we owe in many respects our own heritage as a Presbyterian church to the likes of Martin Luther. He was a priest for many years before he ever grasped the meaning of the gospel and that central biblical doctrine and reality of justification by faith alone. And we can look to the Bible too. There's Judas. For three solid years, he serves as the treasurer. He prophesies, he casts out demons, he performs many works. In the name of Jesus, alongside the other 11 disciples, he spoke up for the poor, he healed people, he called Jesus Lord. And they get to the Last Supper, where Jesus breaks the bread and, 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 and pours the cup like we're going to do in a few moments. And Jesus says to the 12, one of you will betray me. And when Jesus says that, those words, all of them are distressed. And, and most of them start asking the question, is it I, Lord? None of them are suspecting Judas. That's how much the wheat and, the, and the, the weeds looked alike, even in the 12 disciples. Three full years of full-time ministry alongside Jesus and the other disciples, and Judas was the whole time an unconverted man who never knew Christ and who Christ never knew. Peter, on the other hand, who denies and betrays Jesus three times at Jesus' hour of greatest need, and then Jesus restores him, calls him by name. Peter, Simon, the rock. Yes, Lord, Peter says. Peter, at his very worst, had the assurance that he had never been on the outside with Jesus. Judas, at his very best, was always on the outside with Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to discern what we're really talking about here about taking the Lord's name in vain is, is what you could compare to uh, empty name dropping. This happens a lot in cities like ours where there's celebrity and people of note and wealthy social circles and so on. Name dropping is part of the culture, but not just in Nashville. It, it, it really exists everywhere. But empty name dropping is when you, when you create the illusion of having more intimacy, more access, and more insider status with the person whose name you are dropping. So I have a few selfies I'd like to share with you. Let's go with slide number one. Thanks for setting that up. Okay, these are my good friends, my dear friends, as they say on Instagram, Wilson and Charles. They actually are. They're two of my mentors. They're both part of our Christ Press community. I've broken bread with both of them. Etc. These are my good friends, Wilson and Charles. Okay, next slide. This is my good friend, Clay. Many of you know Clay and Amy Richards and their 
wonderful kids, uh, faithful members of our church. Next slide. This is my good friend Todd. Todd likes to give me this picture of himself in many versions. And this is me taking a nap, having sweet dreams about my friendship with my good friend Todd. That's a true selfie. Next. My good friend Russ. Russ Ramsey. <laughs> High school picture uh, for our Cool Springs pastor. And then finally, in quotes, my good friend Roy. Roy Williams, celebrated Hall of Fame basketball coach to the best team in the history of college basketball, the North Carolina Tar Heels. Okay? So I could paint an illusion about that picture. I can tell you that I used to play for Roy Williams, which is actually true because in high school I was playing in hopes that, that one day Roy Williams would notice me and invite me to play on his team. <laughs> Didn't happen. So, so he's, at a recruiting, he's on a recruiting trip for a player over here at Christ Presbyterian Academy a few years ago, and I shamelessly asked for a picture. And he didn't ask for one. And if you were to talk to me about that experience, I can tell you all the details. If you were to ask him about the experience, he would say, Scott, who? What are you talking about? See, everyone in those other pictures has pictures of me as well in their collection. Roy Williams does not and will never. But, but I could create the illusion. And by creating the illusion that I know him when I really don't. I don't know his wife's name. I don't know even if he has kids, let alone how many or what their names might be. I don't know what his fears are. I don't really know much about his faith. I, I don't know what his favorite breakfast is or if he even eats breakfast since everybody's intermittent fasting now. So to present that Roy and I are dear friends is to take his name in vain. And he could rightly turn to me and say, I never knew you. It's what you might call in this context a Jesus groupie. Dropping his name, taking selfies in events that involve Christian participation like Christian worship, having Christian friends. Christian friends tend to be, for the most part, very lovely people. Being involved in Christian service where it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in the world. It's possible to be involved with all these things and neither know him or have ever been known by him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, estimated, and he said this publicly, he said this to his congregation, I suspect that only 20% of you actually know Christ. It's the prince of preachers. And the other 80%, he's, he's essentially saying, I think you're Jesus groupies. I think you're here for some other reason. Because when I look at your life, you're not bearing the name rightly. In fact, you're contradicting the name. You're around Jesus a lot, but, but it appears that you've never actually been with him. Because the more you're with him, the more you become like him. But if you're only around him, like Judas was for three years, you go unchanged. Your heart becomes impenetrable. So someone can be publicly invested in the name of God. But here's, the, here's the, one of the litmus tests. If somebody asks, but what does your faith look like in private? How does it play out for you in your pursuit to fulfill your chief end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever on a daily basis? What does that look like when you're all alone in a room? What does that look like when you're all alone behind a computer screen? What does that look like when you're on social media? What does that look like when you're talking about somebody that you're struggling with? What does that look like when you're in church? 
What does it look like when you're at work, when you're at play? What does it look like? To take the Lord's name in vain is like posting a selfie with Jesus and saying, here with my good friend Jesus. But in reality, he, he might turn and say, Scott who? It's the most terrifying thing imaginable. And if it's not terrifying, that should be terrifying. So, important next question and last question. How can we know that he knows our name? You know, one time, Ricky Gervais was a guest on, um, on Stephen Colbert's show, and they're talking religion. And Colbert, as a longtime Catholic, uh, said that he believes that there's only really one person who can know they're going to heaven, and that person is Jesus. Nobody else can really know. How comforting it is to know that the man who is perhaps Jesus' closest friend in the world, who referred to himself as the beloved disciple, John, wrote these words to us. I write these things to you who believe, not who do, but who believe in the name of Jesus, the name that you may know that you have eternal life. No equivocation, no doubt, no suspicion. And even if you do have equivocation and doubt and suspicion in your heart, it doesn't change him. It doesn't change his stance on you. It doesn't change the fact that he's tattooed his name right here on your forehead. And even, even though you can't see it unless you're looking in a mirror to, to behold his image, it's there from his perspective. So, so what are a couple of other indicators? One is surrender of the will. When you can trace signs, not perfectly, but imperfectly, where your will has been surrendered to God, until your will has collided with God and you've gone with God instead of yourself. You know, they call a dog a man's best friend, and, and, and this is true until your will collides with the will of your dog. For us, it's our dog Lulu. Lulu, we call her the greeter. She's the friendliest dog imaginable until you announce that it's time for her to take a bath, and then she runs, you catch her, she fights you, she claws you, there's going to be scratches and blood on your arms before it's all over. Because in that one instance, my will is colliding with hers. You know, Dan Doriani, who was uh, Todd's seminary teacher, mine, as well as David Filson and Russ Ramsey and many others, he says there's a difference between agreement and loyalty. He writes, the test of loyalty to the Lord comes when his will crosses ours. That's the test. We truly obey God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or strange actions. Like forgiving somebody when they've hurt you. Like being generous with your time and your wealth and your relational capital. Like assuming the best about people instead of assuming the worst when you don't have the full picture on their lives. It requires painful or strange actions. Painful. Can I identify a costly obedience in my life? Strange. Can I identify a time or many times when I've obeyed a command of God that made no sense to me? Those are the tests. It really boils down again, and we talk about this a lot, and this, I think Moses would be pleased with this, you know, point. 
it all boils down to how we relate to the Word of God, to the Bible itself. Is there a pattern of submitting to the things or to the parts that we don't underline? Is there a pattern of submitting to the parts that we don't highlight, that we don't emphasize? Is there a pattern of submitting to the parts that disturb us? You know, verse 21, he's talking not about entering into a social club. He's not talking about entering into a contract with a consultant or a personal advisor over whom you have veto power. He's talking about entering a kingdom. Verse 21, and every kingdom assumes a king, and every king assumes subjects, and every subject assumes submission, surrender. And so he goes on in verse 23 and uses the word lawlessness. Lawlessness is what defines those who bear the name not rightly. They tamper with the Ten Commandments instead of asking the Ten Commandments to tamper with them. You know, Ted Koppel at his uh, famous commencement speech at Duke University said this. Ted Koppel, uh, some of you are too young to know who Ted Koppel is. Um, Think of um, a pretty legit reporter who reports the facts. And of course, he had a bias like everybody, but he was pretty legit. And here's what he said at Duke. We say, shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. We say, enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but wear a condom. No. The answer is no. Not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no, because it is wrong. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling, approach, a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai was not ten suggestions. They are commandments. Bearing God's name rightly means submitting to God not chiefly because there are benefits to submitting to him, which there are. If you want to live a healthy, flourishing life, submit to God's commandments. They are your design, just like, you know, they are your habitat. The, the, the commands of God, like fish is the habitat of a water, or the water is the habitat of a fish. Sky is the habitat of an eagle. The commandments are the habitat of a human, made in the image and likeness of God. We don't chiefly submit to him because of benefits, but because he is, he actually is, Lord, Lord. He is Lord, whether we acknowledge him or not, but he needs to be Lord, Lord, said with affection, felt in reality, and followed in spirit and truth. We're talking about relinquishing our independence. We're talking about assuming the posture that the, the little girl who misquoted Psalm 23 presents. The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Sometimes the misquotes are actually not really misquotes at all. Isaiah gives us a picture of this in, in chapter 6 of his prophecy. This is Isaiah, you guys. There in that chapter 6, he says to the Lord, here am I, send me. And an important detail of this is he says, here am I, send me, before God gives him his job description. Before God says, this is what it's going to mean for me to send you. 
He says, here am I. Command me. I love, Lord, because I love you. And I love who you are. I love what you're about. And therefore, I love when you tell me what to do. And when you tell me who and how to be. I love it. There's nothing better for me than that. And then God says, okay, you've just signed up for a life of misery. You're going to preach my message. People are going to hate you. Your congregation is going to be whittled down. 90% of the people are going to exit on you and erase you from their lives. They're going to drag your name in the mud and eventually you're going to be sawn in two and that's how you're going to die. And then he goes. He stays true to his promise, here am I, send me. Why on earth would Isaiah not renege? It's because of what Isaiah writes intuitively in chapter 65. That the Lord's thoughts and the Lord's ways are higher than ours. That he loves us and he knows what's best for us more and better than we love ourselves and know what's best for ourselves. You know, I get in this regular conversation with Patty. We start most days asking each other the question, what are you going to do today? What's your plan today? And the older I get, the more my answer is, is becoming refined. And I think the best answer at the beginning of every day is this. What's your plan today? To make it my goal, to repent often, to stay low, and to do the next faithful thing. For what else is there? So surrender the will and lastly surrender the credit. I've already talked some about this. When you are faithful in serving him, a sign that he knows you and that you know him as you rush immediately to crediting him and not yourself. There's no notion for you of, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? No. There's, Lord, I cannot believe that, that you turned this sinner and struggler into the kind of person that would do anything in your name. Thank you. As my friend Giff Thornton likes to say, I thank God often for the gift of faith because without God I would not have faith in the first place. It's all a gift. So surrender the credit to the Lord, not to yourself, which really does mean surrendering the fight, the battle that you've been fighting all your life to make your own name. To establish your own reputation. To validate you. There's good news here for people who have struggled in that impossible fight. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? How is this possible? How is it possible to get past this self-credentialing posture. It happens, as we see in verse 15, when Christ becomes our resume, when Christ becomes our boast. You know, he talks here about wolves in sheep's clothing, but the flip side of that is that his true people are clothed with sheep's clothing by the good shepherd himself. And what does that clothing look like? Number one, Jesus surrendered his own good name in order to cover the bad name that we have accrued for ourselves. Even the great apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners, deeply in need of mercy and, and grace. 
Secondly, not, and not only this, Jesus also has selfies of you plastered all over the wall, all over his Instagram. Jesus has got selfies of him and you, and he drops your name along with Abraham, Noah, Rahab, David, Scott Sauls, and other great sinners. Jesus plasters your name all over his wall, pictures of himself with you all over his wall, and he says to his father, look, my good friend, with no quotations, my good friend, Jeremy, my good friend, Matthew, my good friend, Virginia, my good friend, Patty, my good friend, Mallory, my good friend, Sherry, my good friend, Howard, my good friend, Todd, my good friend, Katie, my good friend, Mac in the back, my good friend, Jimmy, Look, Father, isn't he lovely? Isn't she lovely? Then the Father turns to us, as he did with Isaiah, whose good name had been attacked, tarnished, wrung through the mud by the people he came to love and serve. And in comes the voice of God to this isolated man and says, but this is what the Lord says, he who created you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. What better name could you or I ever be called than his? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as we begin our approach to the Lord's table. What qualifies us to be at your table is not that we have made a name for ourselves with you or with anyone else, far be it from that, but that you have called us by name. And Lord Jesus, you gave up your own name. You became a man of no reputation by the wise considered a fool so that we could be fools for Christ, fools for redemption, fools for your adopting, caring love, fools for the gift of faith. Father, we come to you as fools who are never regarded by you as fools because of the covering that Christ puts over us. And we thank you for the bread and the cup, the body and the blood that seal that for us now in Jesus' name. Amen.